0: I'm so happy that my final forum speaker is Jane McAlevey because she not only knows about what matters, she also has some ideas about what we should do about it. She knows that you are not serious about law and politics if you are not grappling with the fact that we live in a new Gilded Age. She also knows that we will not be able to respond to this new Gilded Age with gimmicks, No app, no targeted mail campaign, no super lobbyists, no flashy YouTube videos, no AI, no pre-planned hashtag, and no shallow mobilization strategy is going to save us. Only the slow and steady and smart work of organizing is. Jane McAlevey is a longtime organizer in the environmental and labor movements. She's a contributing writer at The Nation magazine, is the author of Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, And no shortcuts organizing for power in the new Gilded Age, which we have copies of and selling for $10 afterwards. She has returned to Harvard Law School to share her experience and insights into what it will take to organize deep worker power in our new Gilded Age for one final time. Let's hear it for our forum speaker. Thank you. Class struggle is the theory of power that I adhere to, that I believe the withdrawal of labor in what I call strategic sectors um, can lead to creating a crisis, I think to win against tough corporations, hello Harvard, and powerful and rich and wealthy, powerful entities like the Koch brothers, the Mercers, and the many powerful entities that are funding and behind most of the take down of what were the laws and regulations that movements that were much stronger many decades past in this country, actually won, um, that you have to be able to create a crisis. The lesson of history and the lesson of the present is that when you are capable of creating an actual crisis for the targets of your campaign, you can win. So the question is how do we best do that?
1: Hi, I'm Jeremy. I'm a dork living in Portland, Oregon who spent too many years listening to podcasts and not doing anything creative. This is my attempt to rectify that, to create and contribute something where I talk to people about their cultural obsessions and try to give some recommendations of my own. Welcome to Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person. I can't really think of any other way to start other than welcome, ladies and gentlemen, once again, to Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person. I am your host, Jeremy, joined from uh, our basement studio here in sunny Portland, Oregon, on a lowly summer evening that's actually not like rainy or hot so i'll take it uh joined with t- uh, two um guests and co-hosts uh guests and co-hosts would you please introduce yourself starting with our special guest for the episode your turn
2: hey uh seamus cook here thanks for having me i'm a dsa member and local organizer
3: and i'm uh your old pal garrett uh i'm a dsa member as well but not an organizer hopefully i'll learn how to become an organizer today
1: Yes, and and yes, then that is the topic of the episode. Is I wanted to do an organizing one hundred and one because it's something that I think, especially since a lot of we're getting a lot of new people are joining. You know, I want to not not just ostensibly just, uh, leftist orgs, but like full on. You know, getting far more. Uh, you know, we're kind of we're. After four decades of terrible political demobilization trends, a lot more people are getting involved again and stuff. So, I figured it would be handy to have an organizing one on one in the guise of an episode. Plus, Seamus wanted to have you on because you have at least given, what, at least one, if not a couple of these kind of talks to uh, local members, among other things? Just one. Just one? Okay. (laughs) So far, yeah. Yeah, that's a start.
2: And a a disclaimer that I'm not an expert organizer by any means. I just happen to know many, and have learned some lessons from them, and uh, at least the ABCs, the 101, I'm pretty adept with. So
1: that's cool. Yeah. Well, well, the um, you know, welcome to podcast land, where not knowing something entirely is um, no restraint about talking about it for about an hour <laughs> and a half or so. That's right. No one's for, no one's forced to listen to this. So. Yeah, and uh, we at least try to keep it entertaining uh Sheamus, can you give us a uh, like a quick little like background as to like what you're working on and like how you got involved into um i don't know like political active organizing and whatnot
2: sure um well as a as a, a radical person if you want to call yourself that um, capital r yeah um the iraq war two thousand three kind of woke me up and um after that I uh, learned some very basics about, you know, what it means to be political, even, what it, what the left is, what, what the right is, my place in that. And um, in maybe like 2006, I got involved in my first organizing group, which uh, is still around in Portland. It's the Portland Central America Solidarity Committee. And uh, from from there, I've worked on different projects uh, in, my, in my union. I'm a chief steward in my union. We can talk about that if you want later. Uh, I worked Sure. In the 15 Now campaign, and also Portland Tenants United, and now with DSA. And as I said before, like I've worked with a lot of good organizers, and uh, just watching them in action, trying to mimic them, learn some of the ABCs on how you do this stuff, and uh, realized at some point that like it's kind of like uh, the Jedi. It's like a lost art, and it's not really taught too much among the left, even. Uh, unions teach it sometimes. Many don't. Most mm-hmm. don't. So it's a special lost art, you know, that we needed to uh, rediscover. Yeah. Does anyone have, because um, I'm not even aware of this, like,
3: is there even like a decent sort of old text that everyone sort of starts with? You know what I mean? That That's like, oh, you want to know about this? Here, borrow my copy of X, whatever it is. Does that I, make is that a uh
2: Yeah. Uh, I think a
1: lot of people would tell you that uh Seldensky. Well, yeah, that that's the default that like the, the, the snap result the snap result. result. Snap <laughs> Google Snap results. The snap response to that, even though as people pointed out that you know the, the book apparently what book works really, really well if you're in Chicago. But Yeah, that's in, what
3: I was wondering. If is... you're not in
1: Chicago without that particular history and setup, you know, exactly how effective Um, well, it's beyond broad strokes.
3: And the only reason I ask is because I can't think of one. So, so you're saying there's this book by Selinsky. Let's, let's stick a pin in that for a second. But, um, it seems like it's something that the terrain is always evolving because, you know, the power structure is always against you. You know what I mean? So it seems like it, it almost might not even be a thing you can really do that you can't really write a guide to organizing. That wouldn't be maybe outdated in five years or something
2: like that 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 gets to a key point Um, there's a a nice little booklet called axioms for organizers that is online available for free Uh, put together by Fred Ross who's a notable organizer worked with Cesar Chavez and worked in the auto plants as well Mm -hmm. Um, and it's old axioms it's like statements that are like forever true about organizing and organizing that heart is people working together. Mm-hmm. And there's certain like iron laws of how that actually happens that you know transcend time and place. Uh, but you're right that you have to apply that to new circumstances constantly. Mm-hmm. And that piece is always changing and you can't apply laws to that. But there's a there's a core to organizing that is you know, f- as long as humans are going to be social animals some of this stuff is going to you know be relevant. Yeah.
3: Capitalism's trying really hard to make us not social animals, but it doesn't seem to be working.
2: Well, and, and that gets also to the heart of things. That's why organizing is so important, is uh, this is a very individualistic society. Capitalism is all about the individual. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have to combat that. And yeah. We have to work together collectively. So that's why it's so critically important and revolutionary to learn these skills. Right.
3: Well, and the real, I think the real poverty of our lives in this day and age is the lack of community. I think that is the way in which in a, in the United States and probably most other wealthy countries are, the way that we're poor is that we are not together. That's just my opinion.
1: Right. I mean, yeah, yeah it's like the whole thing, you know, the post-war model has been, you know, atomization on all fronts. Um, right. Geographically uh, um, and, and, you know, use things to certain weapons development, literally, since then. Folks, this is Jeremy just popping in here. If you like what you're hearing, why not help us uh, make the show. You can support us for as little as a dollar a month, donated through our Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash mic. Every little bit helps. Thanks. I think just to, I guess, just to start with, like, some basic terms, um, to go off of in some of the things, I have read some stuff by... Um, I don't want to say famed organizer, but at least author and organizer Jane McAlevey in her book that came out—I think was it last year, you know, last year there—but she actually lays out in the book the uh, the differences between uh, organizing activism and advocacy. Like, have you uh, have you ever heard that split the the breakdown from that? Um, I don't know exactly how she defines it. If you have on hand her definitions, we can use that. Well, I think her from her definitions are ad, advocacy is like you know you it's you know big like kind of Greenpeace groups where you 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 they collect like they do like petitions and they collect you know I think ACLU the ACLU too where they collect funds and whatnot and kind of uh, go to the center of powers and just like advocate for particular causes. So they're within system, is what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, activist, the acti- you know, activism or act, or, you know, which doesn't even get into activistism, which is a whole other thing. But uh, d- activists are kind of like much more, I don't know, like members of, you know, uh, members of a group who go out and do certain things, like, you know, kind of like Greenpeace members or whatnot. Especially on campus, you knew, you know, everybody knew the activist type. And then, Versus the organizer, which was much more um, as opposed to like, you know, someone taking on the special status of themselves of like here, you know, you know, put all your faith in me and I'll go off and do something trying to get trying to enact mass, um, like, you know, getting a bunch of people oriented in a particular direction and having it, um, you know, almost like trying to achieve and work for power themselves, which is like three different models of um I- of like how you you know how you go about you know how things are or how you try to affect change does uh, that make sense i'm having
3: well, it does, but I'm having a little bit of trouble distinct, still distinguishing organizing an act or organizer and activist because it seems like the organizer would be an activist. you know what I mean
2: well, let me jump in and say like I think th- one distinction is is um uh, you know how I was kind of inducted into the left politics is the activist model, which is. Kind of like you look up, you look at politics like a hobby, kind of. And in my spare time, you know, I might play basketball and go to movies. And I'm activist, and it's almost like a cultural thing, where like maybe it's just you go to a protest, or maybe uh, your actions are pretty limited, uh, your your scope is narrow. I think, and and it's not really like there, there's so many components like left out of that, and and one of the key component is, and I think. Uh, Jay McLeavy talks about this a lot also is like the component of power and power. It gets to the heart of, you know, what organizing is. Uh, I've heard organizing described as defined as moving power from them to us. That's organizing. Mm -hmm. It's like taking power first and foremost and being comfortable wielding it and taking it from others, mobilizing people, um, really shifting the balance of power. To me, it gets to the heart of the issue versus an activist who might just, you know, do a one-off action or mm-hmm. you know, make it a, a hobby. Got you. Yeah. Got you. Oh, um, so you're trying to build towards
3: power as an organizer. That's the, that's the main difference.
2: I, I think so. Yeah. Uh, every time there's like any kind of, uh, in even within the word organizing, there's different kinds of organizing. Like I could uh, organize a movie screening, for example. And that's not, that's more like organizing education. And education is a component of how you move power. So, but, and uh, you you can also just organize any kind of event. People organize weddings. And that's a, that's a big project for organizing, you know, and you use similar skills organizing a wedding as you do like a, a rally or protest.
3: That's an excellent point. I never thought about that. I'm actually organizing a wedding uh, currently. Yeah. So that's interesting. And you
2: got a a checklist of all the things you got to get done and Mm -hmm. all these moving parts. Yeah. And that's kind of like the organizer brain is how do I get all this stuff that's pretty chaotic and out of control and all these variables? And how do I make sense out of that? How do I bring some and take out of the chaos and make it orderly? When you, if you view it in terms of, okay, I'm making a distinction here between, you know, organizing a rally, a one-off rally or protest, which often is necessary. That's one kind of organizing. And that's an organizing you would do in, in a left group like like DSA does that organizing as well. And uh, Jane McAlevey would call a, a distinction between that and like deep organizing. And deep deep organizing uh, is what labor unions teach, and they use sell and ski as a, a one model for that. And that is taking, and th- this is the highest level of organizing. Is taking someone who's apolitical, who's not interested in anything, and finding their issue and moving them into action, and that really is like the highest level of organizing, and it gets to the heart of like how we make a revolution as well. Mm. Right now, you know, we look at the at the left as you know smaller, and we look at the the broader masses as being you know, out of out of our out of touch and unable to be political. Uh, an organizer will say, and it's true, that everybody can be moved. Everybody has an Without issue doubt. that they care about deeply enough to do something about. Hmm. And we have to find that issue, that's step one. Identify yeah. the issue. And then after you do that, you can move them based on all different kinds of tactics. Um, and we can walk through this step by step here, but like really, so a great example is Portland Tenants United. You know, what we did, we knocked on doors on East Portland where a lot of people are non-political. They're disenfranchised, they're poor, uh, unempowered, and a key part of organizing is empowering people. So how do I get you to feel like you have power? Yeah, that's, I'm very interested in this, so. so And that's like the key part, like you're not going to do anything if you feel powerless. Right. So how do I help you realize your own power? So that's what an organizer's job is, to help people realize that they have power. And part of that is, um, so let's use rent control. Because to me, that's been a huge highlight in my uh, organizing career is go- knocking on doors in poor neighborhoods and talking about rent control. And everybody you knock on a door at a complex in a poor neighborhood is going to be like, hell yes, I want rent control. Mm-hmm. And they are militantly pro-rent control. Right. So I found their issue. That's half the problem. Once I do that, I got to tell them. Or show them hey we have a pathway to victory and that requires your help your involvement in this project mm-hmm. can get us from A to B and if you can show someone to convince someone that that making their issue realizable based on their participation that in a nutshell is organizing how to organize
3: right okay that's really interesting and you find like when you're knocking on doors for example which is something I like in my heart earnestly want to do but i'm afraid to do what do you find uh how do you find people respond i mean like 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 i, I imagine there's an, an initial bit of discomfort but 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 if you connect to them
2: and then, how does that happen well, i mean
3: like like help me out here i mean
2: first of all you're knocking on strangers doors and right you're, and if you knock on my door i don't want to talk to you exactly <laughs> unless let's say you're going to give me money right and i'll be like come on in yeah Mikasa Sukasa. Right. So that goes back to the issue part, like around rent control as is one issue. When I have an issue like that, I feel extremely confident. I'm knocking on anybody's door who's mm-hmm. a renter. Because you're kind of giving them money in a sense. Exactly. You got zero fear on that issue. Other issues I'm like really hesitant about. I'm like, I have no idea how they're going to respond to me. And then I get really freaked out and anxious. But if I know my issue's strong, I can just walk in there like, hey, I know you want me in here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, interesting. And there's other components of door knocking as well, like disarming people at the door. You know, um, um, I mean, one way, one one tactic is saying like, "Hey, we have a a free event. We're inviting you to." There's yeah, a- I always want to start. I would want to start with, "I'm not
3: going to ask you for money at all, like ever, in this conversation that we're having." You know what I mean? Like, that's that's something that would. I don't know how well that would work, but that's how I would like want to start the conversation.
2: Wait, well, you know, real quickly. Uh, one complex was a really hot day in East Portland. We're knocking on doors, inviting folks to a barbecue around tenants' issues. And in one complex, we had five men who answered the door in their underwear, just sweating because it was so yeah. hot. And each of these men looked at me like they wanted to kill me. <laughs> of course. And within one minute, they were smiling, and nodding, you know, and we were friends. It was still awkward because they're almost naked, but...
1: <laughs> it's a sweaty day, what are you going to
2: do? And that, But that's the power, again, of like, these are, you know, not rich people in a poor neighborhood. I'm bothering them on a hot day and they're sweating, yet still they're going to talk to me because I know their issue.
3: Yeah, that's cool.
2: And organizing, a lot of organizing is, how do I find your issue? It's easy, in a sense about apartment complex and rent control. I know all these renters want this automatically. Right. That's easy. Other other times you have to do surveys. You have to find out what are your main issues. Mm-hmm. And then you can go back to the group and say, hey, we did a survey and all of you want this or that issue. So then, how do you I'm sorry, can you yeah. unpack that a little bit? Sure. Uh, this, a survey in general or well, how that no, works?
3: No, no, I mean I understand how a survey works. Uh let me let me rephrase like like who like, like in the case of rent control, you've got, you've got a, in, in, in a certain sense, you've got a, uh,
1: a, set mater- a, a a pertinent, extremely relevant, uh, material issue that's facing them. Like everyone, well,
3: not just that, but you've got a group of people, you know, to go talk to. So like you're, you're, you're generating a survey. Who are you asking? Like, are you asking the same people? Like, hey, we know you care about rent control. What else do you care about?
2: Well, yeah, it it depends on on the intent. Uh, so a survey is a great thing to do if you're organizing a tenant union. Um, and you know people want rent control. But what else are the issues at this complex? Mm-hmm. Let's find out the issues. And if we find that a supermajority want three things, those are the three things that we act on. Those, gotcha. The, and we go back to these people. Hey, you said you wanted this really bad. And we have a path to victory to achieve this thing if only you and five others get involved. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you join us to achieve this thing? And you'll find, as we found in PTU, that it was just a lot of random people who had no prior experience in organizing and become expert organizers. Just like they have the instincts, they just needed like an opportunity to get engaged.
1: Yeah. They um they mentioned this in the um it was the book done by a couple of a couple Bernie organizers that was published I think like November 2016 I think it was called like Rules for Revolutionaries or something like that but they actually mentioned about the um one of the benefits of their style of kind of casting out nets is that. what was it like? You know, there was a line in there, something like, you know, leaders, you know, you will find leaders. Leaders will make themselves known to you because you'll just find them out, you know, in places you will never, ever expect to look. And they'll just kind of like somehow uh, they will come forward. Yeah, there's
3: there's got to be droves of untapped potential as far as that's concerned. And
2: this is a key part of organizing as well that's also often misunderstood by the left is that the natural leaders, either at a complex or a work site, are not. The left people often the left folks. they might be the most conscious politically but often the leaders are um they're people who their co-workers respect because they they have knowledge at the workplace um at the complex they help their neighbors mm-hmm. they're reliable yeah you know, they're sort
3: and, of like ethically firm people yes yeah Tr- and,
2: trustworthy
3: all that stuff
2: totally yeah. and the the group gravitates towards these people And those are the people you really want to recruit first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have them, you're in danger of losing the campaign. So, like, identify and find the leaders, recruit them, have them on some level participate in the campaign is often a critical part of any organizing campaign. Awesome. I think
3: that's – I think that's – to me that's really something very interesting that i i wouldn't have considered that like you know the people that sort of self select for being leaders are the ones that should be leaders well i don't i don't know that i necessarily believe that but what i'm saying is that you offer an interesting perspective about no look to the people that are trusted that are well respected and talk to them and, and and say hey what do you think of this and if you can get them on your page, bam, you got something. Yeah, you're
1: coming into a, you're coming into a, situ, a situation that already has pre-established social relationships. Yes, if not full-on hierarchy.
2: Well, and I think this is a critical issue on the left in general because, um, as you'll notice, probably a lot of people attracted to left politics. There's a wide range of reasons why we are attracted to left politics. Right, and one, you know, for myself, even uh, the feeling of uh, you feel disenfranchised, you feel isolated. You know, um, this or that reason, uh, it doesn't make you a natural organizer, a natural leader. Uh, it's just that you know you, for whatever reason, are really anti-establishment. Mm-hmm, it could right. just be like, you know, you're a very oppositional person, and you don't like anybody. You know,
3: yeah. <laughs> I, I hate, I hate undeserved authority, and it, the whole all <laughs> our society is teeming with it. And it's like, and I just. ...reflexively hate it, you know what yeah. I mean? And yeah. it's like, you don't get to tell me what to do. Like, you didn't... You know, because you worked at a
2: job for 12 years, you get to tell me something? You know. There's a lot of, like, that on the left of just like, angsty people who, you know... ...really, really aren't in a, in a position to be great organizers... uh ...based on their predisposition, predisposition even. And then they, they get amongst themso- other people amongst themselves in the same milieu... And they're all there for the same, similar reasons. And you create this kind of left culture that uh, organizing seeks to bust out of. And that, I think, is the critical point we're at right now is organizing is not about among the left. It's about the broader population. Yes. Right. That is the goal. We aim towards those people who aren't already radicalized. Yeah, the
3: left has been largely sort of cloistered. Yes. You know, my whole life, longer than my whole life, but, but definitely my whole life.
2: And you could argue that, and I will argue that, it's the inability to get to the broader population that is really keeps us in an unhealthy milieu. Mm-hmm. We relate to each other, and we can't, we can't have further achievements because we're not growing our numbers. And that creates infighting, and who's better, who's the most radical, this or that. Right. And it creates a toxic milieu. And you need the windows open, get some fresh air in, which is more people who are more connected to the broader community... To really, you know, make make it a better uh, environment,
1: yeah, break it out of just being a a, yeah. a, a subculture of powerlessness and yes, the um, yes, the maladaptive behavior that engenders.
3: Well, and I think a lot of people who, um, you know, s- you know, self describe as left. I think that a lot of them, though, I won't charge all, you know, grew up with relative privilege in their lives, yep. but, and they and they see the they, they do see the bullshit correctly of our society, but they do need somewhat of a slap in the face by the people that go, Well, I'm living this this reality that you're talking about and you just learned about it at, you know, whatever liberal arts college you went to, you know. Um, and I I think that's an important uh, uh part of that thing too, is it, it brings people who who ha who don't have that they they they've read a lot about class consciousness, but they haven't Experienced it as a as an emotional or significant personal event, if that makes sense
2: totally and it's the another key issue of the left is you have a population of relative privilege that is leading the left um and that and that, that's also part of the hobbyist part of it, you know mm-hmm. like i can always I have a way out of here right, and a lot of these people friends of mine, for example, like you buy a house and you're like later. I had my my hobby when I, in my twenties, and now I'm moving on and really integrating into the status quo right. of of reality and accepting and benefiting from what is currently, and therefore not willing to change it further. Right. So, and also part of that, also the anti-organizing aspect of that is, you know, if you're from like a relative privileged point of view of like middle class, affected, <laughs> then you're more likely going to be very individualistic. You know, you're going to. Yes. Because we we're all taught that in this society. And right. organizing is the exact opposite of that. Organizing is collective action, cooperation, working together, versus me out for mine. Right. At right.
1: it's, it's, it's some point, I, we... we um, we need need a mention on one of these episodes to to differentiate between leftist versus radical liberal. Yeah, well,
3: I don't. I you know we can talk about that right now if you want to.
1: Anybody want to go? Want to give want to give, give an example of leftist versus radical liberal?
3: Well, and I, I mean that that framing is already interesting to me. Radical liberal. I don't actually know how to describe that because a leftist a leftist is a radical because the leftist wants society's rules to change right so and they and they have a theory they have uh they have some sort they're an anarchist they're a marxist they're uh whatever they are you know uh libertarian socialist or whatever but but they to a radical liberal what is that so so what is that that's someone that still wants a liberal society in which all viewpoints are politically represented to the to the extent that they're democratically viable I think- and and but they but they want to change the rules of the existing society is that what you think jeremy also,
1: well i think it's part of it but it's also the idea that the way the way they go about effecting the change is through the the you know the indivi- you know the radical the individualistic radical moral you know grand moral act any hey,
2: in- I think right now is a great example of this happening, you know, you have a lot of radical liberals when Trump was elected. And a lot of these folks were part of the establishment or mm-hmm. still are part of the establishment. Uh you have all, our governor for example, is suddenly, mm-hmm. suddenly a radical, part of the resistance. And all these people who were otherwise very privileged and part of the establishment when George Bush was elected, they became radical. You know, yeah. they said radical things. Uh, and that's maybe the, on the right wing spectrum of what what a radical is, uh, but you know, back in the day, a leftist was someone who was anti capitalist. You know, right? And that was a I guess a pretty accepted definition of a, of a leftist. Yeah. And in Oregon, you have a really watered down uh, everything of what is what is a progressive. Well, all that really means anymore is you're against the worst parts of like the far right I- ideology. You know, like yeah, you're you're pro gay people. You know, you're. You're pro-immigrants, you know, you're 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 for the things that the Nazis hate. <laughs> I, I feel
3: like yeah, I feel like people there's a lot of people and I, I'm I'm tired of sort of liberal shit talking, so I, I wanna um there was a time after the election of Trump, especially where it was really cathartic for me to do a bunch of liberal shit talking, but but I just want to say that there is a sort of like like couch uh uh couch. Activism, I guess, uh, uh, couch like, criticism. Yeah, it, there's there's this like, well, I really, I, I, if I'm gonna get online, let's say, or get on social media and say that I feel really powerful about something, it's gonna be something that I actually don't have to do anything about, like, like, um, you know, I mean, yeah, l- l- like what you're saying, it's like I'm very accepting of gay people, I'm very accepting of trans people. It's like, okay. You don't, but you're not like. There's nothing you have to do, and and, that, and that's the thing that makes me sort of cynical about that that group of people. But we need to get them. You know what I mean? We need to like, we need to like attract them.
1: Yeah, I think uh, previous guest uh, Derek Varne, described talked about how a lot of times what is uh, just dressed as like progressivism is effectively just noblesse so oblige of just like the yes. kind of like, the. Um, you know, that the people, you know, that the comfortable folks have, you know, ex- performed the right behavior and, you know, they can they can fully believe it, you know, 100 percent. But it's at some point it is, you know, it's kind of like the uh, the the um the, the progressive ism or at least classically was always more um more of a top down approach of like going to a bunch of people and like here. You know, here are these issues and we're going to help you with these issues that we've already uh, ascertained beforehand.
2: Well, there's, I mean, some of this is the identity part of it, you know, like the ego part. Hmm. Like, I identify with these, you know, beliefs, and therefore I'm a leftist. Or um, as an organizer, it's just like, well, you got to do stuff as well. If, you know, and then anyone can really buy into the system and have any belief they want, yeah. you know. Yeah.
1: I uh,
3: imagine organizing is a much more humbling experience than, as the line goes, ascribing to- oneself as an activist or advocate. Go ahead.
1: Sorry, let oh, see. What is it? The um, the history philosophy has just been about understanding the world. The, the point is to change it, right? Yeah, and, and some famous dude said that.
2: <laughs> What's his name? Uh, <laughs> it, but in Portland today, you know, we there's a lot of lifestyle radicals, um, and typically, again, that's a point of privilege that people right. have. And you know, it's it's fine to have meaning attached to your belief system. You know, there's no problem with that but um at least understand that you know th- there's a limit to what that means
3: i just want to get those people to understand that class is a real thing that's all <laughs> i want them to understand yeah class is real yeah and it hurts people <laughs> and uh we it's okay to talk about that like that's the only thing i want them to get
1: Uh, give a definition for uh, lifestyle radical or an example of because I think it's like, some I think there's a particular there's there's a particular definition of lifestyle or even lifestyleism that gets tossed around. And I don't think uh, like everybody necessarily knows what it means. It's like I think it's, you know another no, another bit of like leftist jargon, if you will.
2: Yeah, well, in Portland, I mean, a great example is this somebody who's really concerned about like where they shop, what they eat. You know, Portlandia is a great example. The TV show is a great example of this. Yeah, you know, and a lot a lot of well-meaning middle class people who you know don't worry about paying the rent because well, they own a home. Like we'll subscribe to this. I've been thinking about this example of this person, um,
3: the person who is really into a TV show, like let's say The Handmaid's Tale, and goes, "Wow, I'm really glad that this came out now." You know what I mean?
1: <laughs> and
3: I, you know, you know and it's, it's like. As long as I only have to watch TV,
1: I'm really glad to talk about politics. Like you know and what I post mean. Post about it. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing is it's it's I, obviously it's that is I don't want to necessarily make you know if for those few listeners who may ascribe to that particular belief if they or at least are conscious enough that. And I like The Handmaid's Tale. Just I, I want that out there. I do not have HBO, so I have not I have not oh, seen it yet. Get on um, Hulu, Jeremy. But the the um. I think I wanted, like, wanted to make clear, it's like we're not exactly like dumping on them. It's like, you know, you know you're a bad person because it's more of like how that's, – that's I think that's part of, it, part of like the organizer's task is to like, – I think, yeah, even like – I think even before the election, Freddie DeBoer said that, you know, the, the whole point is not to dunk on liberals. The whole point is to, mm-hmm. you know, incrementally or just full-on radicalize them. It's like how do you get people – it was like, that's, you know, it's cool that, you know, you are at least, you know, you have, you have an, uh, a base awareness of that. These are problems, but it's like, how do you like, you know, um, not, you know, uh, dial it up a little bit, you know, notch them a little bit over, you know, to a much more active, like left stance of like trying to go about actually changing them.
2: And yeah, being a lifestyle uh, radical, I think is so deep in the culture, in the state that you have ape people who are not political who are lifestyle radicals mm. you know like without even thinking about it they have adopted so many of these social norms in oregon mm-hmm. like i am a firm believer in recycling i believe in recycling you know and to some extent that makes you different than someone in the in the midwest you yeah, know right or
3: south so no and like i'm from texas and if my father were to come visit or something he would be like oh you guys come on what's going on <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. it would be so
2: ridiculous to him yeah, so in in, in a sense, it, these are normal working class people. I think the distinction is important only to the extent that when folks who believe themselves to be revolutionaries are in fact the lifestyle radicals, you know, and, and that to me is like if they're in organizing spaces and they're disruptive by you know them coming from that perspective, that's where it's a problem.
3: Yes, because because I think there's still. To an extent, they're tied into this performative culture. You know what I mean? Like, like they, you know, they're more likely to have internalized this branding mentality. You know what I mean? Of 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 self identity, and I think that they, so so re, you know, being revolutionary or or, or radical is like a, a um, like a like a tag they can add to their brand. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, and,
2: you, and you see these folks like. Every week there's a new post. Uh, hey everybody, just a quick update. I'm now a Marxist Leninist Maoist. <laughs> <laughs> like, and they and they add each a you know, whole new word each time and new new announcement. Everybody, like, really, oh, yeah.
1: it doesn't really matter that much. Probably, you know, yeah, thing like we didn't have social media in 1971. Yeah, yeah,
3: I mean, if you're knocking on someone's door, you know, trying to get rent control or something,
2: and you go, "I'm a Marxist Leninist." you know they're going to go i don't give a shit you know what i mean
1: like,
3: yeah. and,
2: and some like, and some of that is good bar talk you know that sometimes i'll be I'll, I'll engage with you know and i think it it does help to identify with a certain uh, theory of organizing but as as long as you recognize it like the theory the way that you believe that you're mo- you're closest with has to actually be connected to action in some way yeah.
1: yeah all right awesome and on that note let us take a quick break and we'll be right back damn
3: and we're back. On the break we talked about two things, strategy, strategy being one of them, mm-hmm. and then and then barriers to entry and how to uh, deal with them. For someone like myself for example who doesn't I don't quite know where I fit in yet in in left organizing or activism or any of it, how how to help. I mean most what I would most like to do is probably organizing. You know what I mean like but well you know w- what talents are good for what, you know that sort of thing. So you had you had said that maybe you had some notions on removing barriers to entry. Yeah, I guess that that would be
1: that's a you know a good uh a a good transition point into like talking about barriers.
2: Yeah, and so one thing is obviously like teaching basic organizing concepts, you know, uh when I first became an, an activist, and I definitely was an activist for quite a while before I was an organizer. Just like when you enter an organizing space, you're like, what's happening here? Like, all these new words, all these new concepts. Oh, there's an agenda for the meeting. How does that get put together? Why does that matter? Um, oh, you're you're working on this project. Sounds complicated. Like, how do I even relate to what you're already doing? Um, and when you're talking about strategy, like, I have no idea. This is like a foreign language. You're the, All these names, I don't know. So a lot of the, the entry-level stuff is learning the ABCs uh, of what organizing is, you know, and uh, so the organizing one-on-one thing I I did that Jeremy was at, some of that does cover an agenda for a meeting, you know, and how to, to run a meeting, you know, and just uh, relate to a meeting and how to just feel comfortable having your voice heard, and acclimating to the, the group culture, listening. I think listening is very underrated as a key organizing uh Concept, um, you know, and that and that goes that speaks to identifying issues. Mm-hmm. How do I find your issue if I don't ask you questions and listen to what you're saying? And how do we communicate mm-hmm. as a group unless we listen to each other? And, and again, in this culture of super individualism, we're taught to be like good talkers and self-interested. And what an organizer needs to do, what is often discussed in organizing circles, is you listen seventy percent of the time. You talk thirty percent of the time, and when you talk, you ask questions, and those questions are agitational questions. Um, I What's guess, an
1: exa- uh, example? Well, what separates an agitational question from an informational question?
2: So uh, Jane McLevy talks a lot about this, and she defines agitation as a process of self-discovery. Hmm. So when I'm asking you questions, I'm really trying to get you to self-examine your life. Um, I want you to think about your life and the issues of your life. And by me asking you questions that force you to think about your life, you can have moments of self-realization. And you will get agitated by thinking about your life because often we don't think about our lives. We consciously don't think about our lives. We drink a lot. We watch TV. We're Mm. trying to avoid thinking about our lives and the things that need to change our lives. So an agitator is one who asks questions to make you think about your life. And once I have found your issue via asking you questions, Mm. you will show me some emotion on that issue. Yes, I can't pay my fucking rent. Why the fuck is daycare so fucking expensive? Right. Why, do, why, why does my employer have to provide my health care for me? You know what I mean? Like, like that's an annoying one. Yeah. And, yeah. And, there, and anybody can have a different issue, but everybody has an issue. Yeah. Right. And you can find it. And that is that process of agitation that Jane McLevy talks about so well a process of self discovery. So that's the agitational difference that an, an, an organizer is trained to have the organizing conversation, as they call it. Mm-hmm. and that conversation is based rooted in agitation so a good organizer is going to be trained and practice endlessly sometimes one-on-one conversations I just meet you how in five minutes can I move you on an issue how can I find your issue and move you on that issue mm-hmm. and that is a, the secret to success of an organizer is mastering that conversation so, have that conversation so when you're knocking on the
3: door in the uh, East Portland apartment complex, that you're doing that? Well, I mean... not I, all- I know it's an e- you're saying that's an easier... You know.
2: Well, it, it, it really d- depends uh, on your objective. If I want you to join the tenant's union, I'm having that conversation with you. I'm trying to identify the issue and then make you recognize that you can solve that issue by joining the union.
1: A slight diversion there.
3: Yeah, we were, we were on the topic of how do you find a person's issue? Right. And I was using the, which we've used sort of from the start, this tenant tenant union organizing, but we can, we can go something else. Like maybe something, you know, I don't know a little more, I don't know what my point is, is that like, like who are you having that conversation with? Anyone you're talking with? It's totally
2: about, uh, you know, the objective. Um, if I'm doing a campaign about, you know, Medicare for all, it's going to be directed towards healthcare. Mm. Um, but, like, when it, when it comes to typically, you know, sort of like a, a classic example, it comes from the labor movement, like site organizing. My objective is to organize a union, which I've which I've done once. I worked uh, at a nonprofit. I was like, God, was it 12 years ago now? I helped organize a union. And that was kind of like my, my, my baptism into labor organizing. Um, and so your your objective is to form a union. So you get all the coworkers and you have the conversation. You find out their issues at the work site, agitate around those issues, and typically the union can solve those issues. And so you agitate them around their issues and you show them the path to victory, which is joining the union and fighting for a contract that solves your issue. It's an example of agitation. What's an example? Mm-hmm. Well, like, so let's say you're my coworker and a great question, how's work going? That's the best question to ask. And oftentimes, you'll say, shitty. (laughs) And I'll say, why? And we're on the path. (laughs) We are already on the path towards agitation. So me asking you about your job, why is it shitty? Mm. Well, the boss. What about the boss? And before long, we're in the rabbit hole and you're fucking pissed about your (laughs) boss. And I am trained to listen to you and to get you to talk more about your boss and to help you, like... Why do you think the boss acts this way? You know? And typically you'll have a good answer for that. You know, and like and it doesn't take long before, oh, you know, because of this, we gotta fix this. If only this was the case. Right. That's mm-hmm. that's agitation. Good.
1: We learned something today. It's yeah. Very- <laughs> I guess
2: I guess recently I have I'd done a little bit of that, but
3: I unconsciously because sure. I was, they kept uh, sort of uh I'm an accountant for kind of a big non profit. Um not like a nationwide one, but one one that's like decent sized for the state. And uh they kept uh it they kept uh kind of letting people go from our department and then not replacing them and then everyone else was freaking out and stressing and getting sure. angry at each yeah. other. And I finally said like Workload. Yeah and I finally just said, hey guys we're all pissed off at each other for no reason other than that they are I guess are too cheap to hire new employees. And then yes. everyone in their reviews wrote we need
2: more staff and then lo and behold we got more staff that's perfect that's a perfect example you you found the issue that is the key part of organizing mm-hmm. another example back to the tenant organizing a key question of agitation is do you like living here no oh why not yeah <laughs> before long it takes 30 seconds sometimes i catch your issue you know and, it's, and sometimes here's a key part also if I'm having a conversation with you about, you know, work or your complex, whatever, and you don't show me any emotion about your issue, that means I haven't found your issue yet. Right. It means we're not having a real conversation. It means that I'm not a good conversationalist. Uh, yeah, it means you're guarded. You don't want to talk to me.
1: The engagement you, is not there. You so want, how do you
2: break that down? Well, that that's that's a special skill that you just can't teach right you know like that you gotta the case yeah you gotta be like an honest like a le- legit person who isn't a robot and trying to have the organizer conversation and there's definitely people who do that and they suck as organizers in part because they're trying to copy and paste the script mm. and they're not having like a human human conversation so if if i'm knocking your door and you view me as a human you're likely to talk to me about human stuff right versus are you a salesperson And that is a key obstacle for organizing is if you view me as a salesperson, I have to do a lot of work to get that thought out of your head. And oftentimes, I can't ever get that thought out of your head. Right. I've lost already, you know.
3: Some people are so skeptical of that approach or whatever it is that they just want.
2: Yeah. Why are you at my door? Yeah. Like, overcoming that barrier is very difficult. Mm -hmm. And I better be... You know, a good conversationalist, uh, you know, a person who doesn't appear to have ulterior motives. And if I can't get that, then, then I've, lost, I've lost mostly. You know, it's very hard to recover and have like a good conversation and to get anywhere that's going to be effective organizing.
3: Yeah, I think actually that made me think of what might be... You're, t- you're talking to someone, right? And you're getting the sense that this is a, re- a very reticent person with what they're talking about. What do you... Um, where do you draw the line where you're like, you know what, I'm gonna back off, and maybe I'll mm. come back in a couple of weeks yeah. and just say, hey, still, still, uh, would like to talk to you about this or that sort of thing, you know? Like, how do you know where to draw the line with persistence, or how do you... I'm sure that's something you learn with time, but, but
2: that's a really good question. Yeah, we're getting into like stra- uh, strategy and tactics. Is this too
3: here. in the weeds? No, no, not at, no. Not,
2: not no. at all. I don't think so. No. Um, and I think that's very important because I've seen I've done this myself incorrectly. So many times I've seen others do it. And it's really hard because like if you're instructed by your boss, if you work for a union or even if you're a volunteer for like DSA, let's say, and your job is to have X amount of conversations and get like X amount of signatures or Mm -hmm. commitments to this or that thing. You want to try extra hard, have that conversation. And
1: often you have to force, even if you, yeah, even if you have to force it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And once you're forcing it, yes, you need to figure out very quickly. This guy doesn't like me. He's in his underwear, he's sweating, he wants me to leave. And I gotta figure out very quickly if I can have a conversation that's productive. And you will know typically very fast. And if you push it, as a human talking to another human, you'll likely know you're making mistakes in the conversation. So yeah, you need to have like, okay, this person obviously, maybe their hands bleeding from a kitchen accident. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't you know, belabor them so much. Yeah, yeah. Let's get you an ambulance or whatever you need. Yeah, and, yeah. and so many people like you can tell their body language like they're not even talking. They might just nod or shake their head. They want you the fuck out of the, out of their face. So unless you really break the ice very quickly and have like. And even if you say like, "Hey, rent control," that's not going to get every person. People are busy; they have real lives, and most, you know,
1: and not everybody knows what rent control entails. Well, that too, for sure. But
2: like, and really, you can't expect to have a great conversation with everybody. You know, like you're only ever going to get, for the most part, a minority of people who then is their job to talk to their neighbors or coworkers. Right. That's a good point.
3: But what about the what about the notion of like I think I could, I think I could crack this nut if I if I'm careful. You know what I mean? Like, yeah,
2: and a skilled person might be able to do that. You know, and you, uh, and but but it takes two to tango. You need someone. If, if someone's pushing back against you, but they're engaged, like yeah, you might have some time to like work with them. You know, and,
1: but at least yeah, say so at least they're engaged.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, some people like the 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 the, the back and forth, right? But they. But they can be convinced, you know, I mean, I guess that's what that is an indication of is they could potentially be uh, convinced of what you're trying to say to them.
2: But but other people are going to, well, it's very easy to know if someone shuts the door in your face. That's a very quick no. Other people are just going to like wait until you leave. Mm -hmm. And you should be able to figure out very quickly this person's not even listening to me. There's no engagement here whatsoever. I'm going to end this conversation and not push it and piss them off. You don't want to make things worse. You right, do want to make someone anti-union. Right, and you can do that very easily by
1: pushing too hard. Yeah. The um, I think one of the one of the stories that came out of the Brooklyn or Queens, I think it was Brooklyn, the campaign for Jabari Brisport trying to get trying to get winning his primary last year. I think on he was a DSA member, but he it was, it was running on the Green Party. But I think it was a thing where they found out later that so many. That the you know plenty of like canvassers and volunteers and whatnot, but they they were hitting up people so many times that they're actually just like pissing people off. Yeah, and it's the same thing that happens if you you know if, you, if you've ever done phone banking. Is it there? There. Yeah, like yeah. half the time that like you will if the uh, if those lists aren't accurate, people are getting like three or four calls, and that'll kill any uh, that'll kill any inclination um, they have towards. I guess you know your particular goal you're sort
2: of like that overeager server from office space yeah well that, and that's one of the laws of organizing as I call it like um, well one it's connected to like never waste anybody's time mm-hmm. if, and that applies to so many different levels of organizing but if uh, you're impeding on my life in any way you're wasting my time you're bothering me uh, or I came to an event that was not worth you know my time you might lose me forever so that's the 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 core that is having the other person in mind if i were that person how would i like to be talked to or treated assuming i was a political you know like and it's hard for a left person often very hard to have that mentality you know like you have because you have an objective Mm -hmm. and you're not good at empathy necessarily empathy is a a skill in this case in this case it's i need to know how
1: this person is thinking and relating to me, you know, a skill that has to be learned. Yeah, which is, which is it's you know nothing. What is it like? Nothing is obvious. So
2: yeah, and everything about organizing is about the other person's experience. When they come to an event, I have to put myself in their shoe. When they walk in the door, what is their experience? And I better not waste their time, at all. I have to make sure this is a good experience at the door at an event, whatever it is. And that is hard. That's high level organizing to put yourself in someone else's position and to, throughout the entire event or experience. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Who, yeah. Let's be a lesson for everybody else. Who says leftists don't care about UX? So user experience. Um, <laughs> you were, Thank you for spelling, <laughs>
3: spelling that out, Jeremy, because I didn't know what the hell you well, meant by Have but you ever <laughs>
1: seen it listed as UI slash UX? Yes, I guess I have, but I'd never thought about it. But that's user experience, uh, user interface slash user experience, and a lot of it's. um, I've just been. I've once in a while, I have even done like consulting with local companies that have focused on that stuff. Uh, One of the, one of the things I want to get into. Can we uh, can we talk about strategy for uh, for a little bit? Uh, How do you organize people from you know from like an occupy camp?
2: Well, yeah. Well, broadly speaking, strategy is. I think the highest level of organizing because, Mm. and it it depends, of course, on what your objective is. Let's say, for example, we're doing citywide organizing. We have a demand on on city council. Strategy means that you understand all the pillars of power that are involved. Who are all the the players, their interconnections? Who are the powerful people?
0: There's motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wastoids, dweebies, dickheads. They all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude.
2: There's a a classic uh, power analysis that they use in organizing called the SWAT analysis. That one I haven't heard. I've heard that phrase before. Uh, Do
1: you remember what it stands for?
2: Yeah, uh, uh, SWAT stands for Strengths, Weaknesses, Opportunities, and Threats. Okay. And, um... The threats are the people who are against you, the powerful people against you. Right. Opportunities, possible allies who have power. So the power map. You have to understand the power map before you can become a strategist on that level, and the power map is often complicated. You know, you have to like kind of study like who these people are. You know, the law is part of the power map. What opportunities, um, are threats are implicit in the law. So you, until you are familiar, which takes took me years to get a very basic understanding. And every time, every day almost, I learned a new thing about politics and the city or state. Like, oh, that's an important part of the power map that I should mm-hmm. know about, you mm-hmm. know? So that is the precondition of strategy, understanding the power map. And it could be the power map at the workplace, you know, the power map at the apartment complex. Um, so, yeah, under, that's a precondition. After that, then you can really play with strategy, you can play with. Like, how do we mobilize our allies? How do we educate the community? Mm-hmm. How do we organize the media? You know, that's a, a special skill that I think the left fails at a lot or is not comfortable with, you know? Like, how do we use all the different facets of power as part of our strategy to meet our objective?
1: Right. and Actually, that's something, yeah, you know, I've mentioned it before, but it's something George Lakoff has written about for shit, like 15 years now about the... But I even mentioned, I think I mentioned this in the episode where we talked to Corey Pine about it too, but it was like, uh, for the longest thing, like, like kind of, especially when they went to university, if people, if like you had like, you know, progressive leaning folks, they would go into, you know, if they were curious, they'd go into like political science, whereas right leaning folks would go into marketing or economics or economics. Right. Yeah. And which only... is a form of marketing.
3: And if you want it, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> or cheer, can be, let's or put cheerleading. It, we'll put it to you that I'll put it that way. Yeah, I'm actually really interested in economics, but
1: the um, someone someone said it was like you can tell there's something going on when uh, you have you have an economics department. And yet also at the B school, they teach their own flavor of economics, which are uh, slightly yeah. different. But the uh, but the kicker is that in marketing, marketing, uh, marketing, especially, you know, between political science and marketing. Uh, like Lakoff's experience only one of these two has actually like taken into of into account like you know psychological discoveries made over the last 100 years Whereas much more like political science stuff is like still kind of a lot of it trapped in uh, this kind of you know like late Enlightenment era.
3: Yeah, that's a really that's an excellent point actually.
1: Yeah, he wrote a great. In fact, I can if you want, you can borrow my copy. Yeah, he wrote a book I would called, love called, to. Uh, a book called "The Political Mind," like how you can't understand 21st century politics with an 18th century mind. Hmm. And well, but part but it gets into but it's the uh, you know and I bring this up because of uh, like why like a lot of like you know lefty folks be that you know you know from you know from from like regular like progressive folks you know on out the um a sense that you know some people have the idea that it's like you know i you know that this stuff is obvious i just you know as long as you just give people the facts then they will automatically come to your same conclusions and it's like you know it's like you know i shouldn't have to convince you guys i just gave you guys the facts and you know how come you're not you know you're not agreeing to me agreeing with me the other is that that uh communication and persuasion is automatic uh is automatically it's kind of the same thing of like people who have been um people who have been uh abused by like aggressive people connect like automatically assume you know uh make equal assertiveness or is aggressive and so right. it's kind of like anything that's not just pure passiveness is is the response and so because mm-hmm. like you know because if you're you know really damaged by the by this stuff it's like um you know being assertive can look a lot like being aggressive yes. similarly if uh you, you know there's a there's a mix up the um there is there's not the the distinguish the distinction between persuasion and uh, manipulation isn't made. It's like, if you have, if you have to like persuade people mm. or communicate it, it's all marketing, which is all manipulation, which is bad because, you know, we're not the bad people only, you know, they're, they're the ones who manipulate everybody They're They do the bad things. So we, let's not, you know, let's not do any of that stuff. So who needs a proper, you know, who needs media training in a proper communications department? Because it's all, that's just all propaganda. That's you a know? pretty good point. Yeah. I think that's a pretty good point.
2: That's also relevant to organizing a lot because, um, Organizing can be misperceived as manipulation, and often is, because people aren't used to it. Yeah, right. As you you said, and if I have an agenda, an organizing agenda, and you don't know it, it's going to look like manipulation. And that's why it's important that you do know my agenda, you know, like very early on. You can't find
1: out the next day; otherwise, it becomes manipulation. Right, right, you know, and, it's, and I think that's even the even the word age, You know, oh, he's got an agenda that has that automatically has a pejorative. Uh, they you know that has a pejorative sense built into it. Well, and this this
3: kind of touches a little bit on the Corey Pine episode as well, Jeremy, where we were talking about how like there's this continual jargonization to soften language or 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 remove uh, a bit of. I don't know emotional content from it. You see it a lot in like corporate speak, you know what I mean. Uh, but I think the most prevalent place is in the military. The way that, and I think that's where corporations got it from was this notion of, oh no, these aren't these aren't uh, enemy. You know, these are enemy combatants. They're not, you know, whatever the fuck you know the normal word for it would be uh, soldiers or whatever.
1: Yeah, they're yeah they're not soldiers because soldiers are control. Soldiers has protections from the Geneva uh, Convention. Enemy combatants do not.
3: I feel like I feel like a similar thing is going on when you when you bring up marketing, where mar- you know marketing they're really testing like sometimes like what words people are made uncomfortable by or whatever, mm-hmm. and then they soften those words to something else or or, or 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 alter them in such a way so that the word agenda suddenly or or the word argument is the biggest one for me when I say. Oh, we're having an argument. We disagree about something with regard to ideas. And I've had so many people go, No, you're having a debate. Like they're more comfortable with the word debate. And I'm like, Okay, but we are
1: having an argument. Yeah, you the, know what I mean? I think that's like, the thing. Cause that, that's, I think that's definitely cause I think in, I think in, I don't, I. you know, I know, I know a little bit of Spanish, but not French. And I think in French, like the word for argument is they actually split the words for, cause in English, argument means fight. Not, you know, it doesn't mean, um, You know, an argument means cut in definition given in the uh, the argument sketch from Monty Python.
0: Anyway, I did. You most certainly did not. Look, let's get this thing clear. I quite definitely told you. No, you did not. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. You didn't. Did. Well, look, this isn't an argument. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. It's just contradiction. No, it isn't. It is. It is not. Look, you just contradicted me. I did not. Oh, you did. No, no, no. You did just then. Nonsense. Oh, this is futile. No, it isn't. I came here for a good argument. Well, you didn't know you came here for an argument. Well, an argument isn't just contradiction. Can be. No, it can't. An argument is a connected series of statements intended to establish a proposition. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It's not just contradiction. Look, if I argue with you, I must take up a contrary position. Yes, but that's not just saying no, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Argument is an intellectual process. Contradiction is just the automatic gainsaying of any statement the other person makes. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. Not at all. No, no. Good morning.
1: But in like, at least in French, um, you know, in part part of the reason why you know they you know ration, modern rationalism came out of, came out of France too, was that they could they could separate argument from um, you know argument debate from fight, and because like, you know it's like people don't you know nobody you know plenty of people don't like to fight, but um it's like you know the 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 tomb definitions of the word argue um you know kind of get it gets conflated and then if you ever get like if you ever have like a positive version of a word a negative version of a word you ever can if it ever it's if it ever conflates it's like you know because of how we're wired or we will always go you know drift into the like the negative uh definition of the word
3: anyway. Yeah, I guess that was a bit of a sidetrack, but no, that's no, fine. It's, yeah. it's, 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 you know, welcome, you know, welcome to this show. Um, we've, we've we've stayed remarkably on topic. I feel. Oh, well, like, you in know, and
2: maybe you think about um, when you said the word agenda. How oh, that's bad. You know, I, I think uh, in terms of organizing, a lot, a lot of we are trained to believe, or to have a negative reaction to a lot of words that are around organizing. Because we are trained to accept our position as powerless people. Mm-hmm. So it's been naturalized.
1: This is how it is. Ooh, it's deeply ingrained in us. Yeah, internalizing
2: the uh
3: the ideology or whatever. Yeah there, yeah, there
1: are you know, this is yeah, this is just this is just how the way that things are, you know. Q Q Mark Fisher. This is you know, there is no alternative. I had a coworker say to me recently,
3: Well, we can't have Medicare for all because the insurance companies won't let us and I'm like, why do we need the insurance companies to let us? And it, it looked like I had Hit him in the head with a bat or something. By the, the by, the look on his face. You well, know and I
2: mean? we're trained to believe, as you said, like nothing ever changes, and that we don't have any power. So once I start using a language contrary to that, it's kind of triggering. You know, mm-hmm. a, yeah, it makes people uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. In working class people who aren't uh, taught to uh, be comfortable with power, or are taught to, to believe things like. Uh, absolute power what's what's that
1: absolute was it power corrupts and absolute power corrupts <laughs> yeah.
2: absolutely yeah the lesson for us is don't want power yeah don't desire power don't yeah. desire power I
1: powerless. remain powerless yeah, yeah the the re, yeah the reason why we teach school kids we have junior high kids read Animal Farm is to show them that communism is bad. The, you know, the, Not that Stalin was a fuckhead. right? Um,
2: leave, leave power in the hands of those who rule currently. Yeah, a no, lesson. The,
1: yeah, There are
3: the good people that are better than you, and they're the ones who deserve to have power.
2: And a lot of liberals internalize that as well. Uh, and, and we're not taught that anywhere in our society as working class people. If you're a rich person, you were taught that from a young age. We are part of the elite. We, right. we exercise power. And the elite schools, you are taught leadership classes, how to, right. how to exercise power. Um, and so read to, and that's what the organizer is, is someone who is comfortable with power, who right. deals with power. And this is part of strategy. Going back to strategy is how do we build power? That's almost every component of strategy is we have an objective and we need to build power to reach that objective. And most people, if you tell them, I think this is achievable, this demand is achievable, they will say flat out, no, it's not. You have to convince them by saying, no, I have, I have a strategy. I have a path to achieving this based on building X amount of power. Right. All we got to do is this. And, and it's no, no small task,
3: but we have to do this.
2: And, and, and if we did, bing. And so the hallmark of a master strategist is someone who says, I think this is achievable. Because most of us don't think in those terms. We are conditioned thoroughly to think nothing is ever achievable. So a great example of this is Margot Black from PTU often was the one who said, you know, I think we can win this. And we'd be like, well, tell us why you think that. Because uh, so we sure I, should, no. <laughs> yeah. So a master strategist is someone who says, I see the pathway to victory. I see the power map. I see if we organize this amount of power, we can achieve this. And and a, a good strategist can walk you through that. Ah, like, oh, I get it. Okay, I get it mm-hmm. now. Okay, we can achieve that if we do A, B, and C, and D. And so you have to have a mindset of things are achievable and then a, an understanding of the power map and how we build power to overcome the opposition.
1: Another Yeah, another world is possible. A better world is possible.
2: Right. and And very specifically, like by crushing the landlords, we can achieve this. Right.:: <laughs> um, I'd be so stoked if we did that, y'all. I'm just saying,
3: let's crush landlords. Let's make Oregon a state where it's not legal to own land.
0: <laughs> well,
2: but this piece is interesting about the landlords. so before PTU. The balance of power in this state was so dominated by landlords. The landlord-tenant relationship is so, was, and remains less so than it was, but was completely landlord-dominant. Yeah, they dictated pretty much what happened, And for decades, then they got lazy. It was just like so automatic that they would get whatever the fuck they wanted to get. And here comes Scrappy PTU mobilizing, organizing, making demands. And all of a sudden, the landlords
1: lose their mind. And they. Yeah. How dare you question how things are?
2: My unearned authority is being, is being challenged. And not only that. <laughs> I'm offended by this. And then they were proven, because we got caught in several power struggles with them, and they were proven they were bad strategists. They had no practice organizing. They had no experience doing this because for decades, they got whatever they wanted. Mm -hmm. So we exposed them on so many levels and and exploited their weaknesses based on their inability to actually organize effectively. So that was very interesting to me to see this key component of the ruling class just fumble around like idiots trying to somehow respond to what was happening in a way that was intelligible, and then and then
3: eventually, do they they get hooked up with someone that is good at strategy? And then all of a sudden, you got a real fight
2: on your hands. Is that kind of we, we definitely saw an evolution of that for sure. Welcome to the dialectic. Yeah, but still, like, and this goes back to like you know if you if you have. You get you get in a fight when you have five rematches. You're gonna learn some of the punches that that person's gonna throw at you. So they learn some of our tactics, and we had to adjust constantly. Yeah, to always surprise them. Watch the feet. Watch the shoulder. <laughs> and but still, I'd argue that the firms they hire to do PR and to do strategy aren't that great to this day. Yeah, they're probably. I mean, they're entrenched
3: too, right? Like, like, like. Ultimately, laziness and complacency will plague them, and and they don't have they don't really have the energy besides being able to hire people that that
2: you know, and that I think is also the ruling class at large. Right. I think that, that I think that's absolutely true. And we're seeing some. You're of this. me pump Seamus. Good, I hope you know that. Good, and you're seeing this at the recent election with uh...
1: yeah, they said a progressive Democrat in quotes was also a. Uh, was you was he considered a full-on slum lord or just a landlord with the who was the Crowley? Who, oh, who are you talking about? I'm sorry. Rodman Rowe. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. yeah.
2: That was actually that's even a better example. I, I was thinking of Crowley also. Oh, okay. But um so I thought that's who you meant, Jeremy. I thought we were talking I, about I think, the, the sexy Well, it's kind of it's, <laughs> kind of it's kind of the same thing though. You know, like you had two very complacent people who've been in power forever and didn't think they'd ever lose and out of nowhere this person comes along and just, like, wallops you. And how did that happen? And I'm, I'm not saying this can be done all the time, you know, copy and paste. But, like, it exposes. I mean, look at Hillary Clinton again. Come on. What an awful candidate. <laughs> the, the Democratic Party degenerated so badly. They've been so firmly rooted in the establishment yeah, for so long. Yeah, talk about complacent. Jeez Louise. Yeah. and So th- 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 this is all a reflection of the broader system, right? Of the ruling class being complacent, you know, degenerating. But, but with the Democrats,
3: it's like... Aggressive complacency. I don't even know how else to describe it. It doesn't. Even, it's almost an oxymoron the way that that they're doing it. But anyway, I don't want to get too far on that. But go on about Hillary Clinton.
2: Oh, is this? no, that's that's a good example. They they cling to their power, and they do it in a way that they know how to do it, which is throw money at problems. Mm-hmm. They're not good organizers. They can't mobilize the community in a, a legit way. Well, and ultimately, there's some common sense
3: solution. I'm doing that scare quotes when I say that to every problem. But it's but it's never about values. It's always about there's a technocratic solution. We're the smart people. We will figure it out. And it's like, you know I, what I mean? Like, yeah, and
2: I, and, I, and I would argue that we're entering the period of time where history's changing very fast and there's going to be endless opportunities to organize. And part of the job of the organizer is to identify these opportunities right. and to
1: seize them. Decades are happening within weeks or however long <laughs> it goes. Sure seems that way sometimes.
2: To be continued. On the next
3: episode of Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person.
0: Homo is the leading cyberpunk dystopia stoner occult late-capitalist ad- the known Russian Bob Disinfo podcast. The future is now and it sucks. The algorithm is horny but has no desire. We desire to be like it. We offer ourselves up to the invisible machinery of late-capitalism, hoping to make it horny for our content, our data, our entire lives, and humanity. It's terrible. It's kind of sexy. Listen to Homo Vulgaris. Embrace gay space Third impact luxury anime t-shirt communism. Better living through death drive irony. Homo Vulgaris. Available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and wherever else fine podcasts are found.